0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the Greg Brownerville dimension. Well, it's a very special day. It is May morning, May 1st, and I've been out all night, have not slept. I've been wandering the countryside, gathering the May, gathering flowers. I wanted to do this because I found that when I perform these forgotten rituals, I understand them more deeply. And so if you haven't listened to my last episode, which is about the May, this holiday, you might wanna go back and listen to that because it's gonna give you a better perspective on what I'm gonna be discussing in this episode. Before I get into the specifics of what I learned by actually gathering the May, as the folks did in the old days, I want to share with y'all a conversation I recently had with the English historian, Ronald Hutton. We were talking about this whole business of experiential scholarship, going out and doing the thing that you're writing about. And I thought of some other writers in this connection. I won't tell you all of them because I discussed some of them with Dr. Hutton, but one of them is Nick Mayhew Smith, whose book, The Naked Hermit, I would recommend. This is a good example of this. He's interested in Celtic Christianity and he actually goes out and does the things that the Celtic saints did. And as a result, learns things that other scholars just had not learned because they were you know, in libraries and archives reading about these experiences, but not having the experiences. So I really applaud what Nick Mayhew Smith did in that book. And Hutton himself is a great example of this, which we get into in our conversations. In various locales in Britain, there are traditions involving the hooded horse. Basically a real horse's skull is attached to a staff, and somebody's holding that staff or stick and the horse's skull is up here, and then there's a hood covering the person holding the stick. And Hutton mentions in the Stations of the Sun that he's been that person holding that stick before, and I said it in kind of a funny way when I asked him about it. I said, you hinted in the Stations of the Sun that you've been the horse before, you've been the person holding that staff, and this was his response. Yeah,
1: it was more than a hint. It was an outright declaration <laughs> or admission." Uh, I only did it once for maybe uh, 30 or 40 minutes. I was touring uh, East Kent with a group of Morris dancers, and they included uh, a hooden horse uh, because of the locality. And I was asked if uh, I would be willing to take on the horse so that the usual person who inhabited it could dance. Uh, And I did that and uh, had the experience I recounted in the book, which is uh, realising how much nervousness uh, I inspired in the uh, onlookers and the general public and realising what an archaic and primeval phenomenon that was.
0: Did it change the way you thought about the material itself or maybe the way you wrote about it thereafter? It certainly gave me a
1: much better insight into the nature of the animal-human crossover experience.
0: It makes me think about Maya Dara, an American filmmaker and folklorist who went to Haiti and did a lot of work with Haitian Voodoo, and she says that she thinks there's value in getting into the experience. Your example reminded me of that. Do you think that that it's a good thing for scholars to to participate sometimes and, and not just stand apart? observing.
1: I don't actually see any point in standing apart whatsoever, but I possibly represent a relatively extreme position in this. I've always been a hands-on historian. When I was writing about the English Civil War, I joined the Reenactment Society. When I was writing about folk customs, uh, I engaged in as many of them as I was invited to do by the celebrants. When I wrote about modern paganism, I got to know modern pagan groups and shared in some of their activities. Uh, the awkward thing for me is that unlike a lot of researchers, I haven't actually relinquished any of these connections and activities. So I feel a bit like a trawler with this huge net of research, dragging more and more friendships and activities <laughs> behind me, which inevitably means my diary gets a bit clogged.
0: Yeah, you're, you're involved with the Druids, and you. I know you're a. I think a patron of the British Pilgrims Trust.
1: Yeah, I'm the patron of about twenty different cultural organizations, ranging from the uh, annual Tewkesbury Medieval Fair, the biggest medieval reenactment event in Europe, to a Bulgarian storytelling troupe operating.
0: Does this say something about what got you into? the study of the ritual year in the first place. Are you are you drawn to the this kind of mystical dimension of, of British culture or the folklore? work?
1: I'd love to say I was drawn to the mystical dimension. I reluctantly think I'm probably not much of a mystic. Uh, I'm certainly drawn to the engagement, the performative, the community version and aspect of this.
0: I was fascinated by your account of Abbott's Bromley, the horn dance. Could you tell our viewers about those that, that whole thing and, and the, how old those antlers are? That story fascinated me.
1: Well, there are two different things going on with the Abbott's Bromley horn dance. One is the dance itself, which starts off, according to the records, which are reasonably good, as a perfectly normal Midland singlet hobby horse dance. Hobby horse dancing is a craze of the later middle age as Tudor period, often requiring uh, a specialist or even a professional to dress up as a tournament knight and dance with this framework of uh, light wood covered in the trappings of a war horse and conduct a dance which is technically very accomplished and is a great entertainment. It's genuinely impressive. This really loses popularity in the 17th and early 18th century. And I think that the ritual animal disguises, like the wooden horse and the Mary Lloyd, are later versions of the hobby horse, that it splits off into them in different regions when the general custom decays. In the case of Abbott's Bromley, the hobby horse dance survives. Because it had really old reindeer antlers added to it, possibly in the early 17th century. They're not there in the records from the 16th century. They definitely are there by the late 17th. The antlers have been uh, dated, and they go back to the 10th century, so the early medieval. But they come from antlers that have been domesticated, and been castrated. It makes a difference the antlers. And there are no domesticated reindeer, or indeed wild reindeer, anywhere in Britain at any time in history. So they're imported. There was a local tradition that a local lord, Lord Paget, brought them back from uh, the Caucasus, which is entirely possible. But those glamorous antlers made the hobby horse dance at Abbots Bromley, this little village in the West Midlands, survive. Whereas the other dance died out. And the other dimension of dots is that it echoes something really archaic that when early medieval churchmen complained about seasonal celebrations, they didn't spend much time on Halloween, Midsummer, May Day. They focused on midwinter. And two figures they loathed in the winter ceremonies which were the old woman, the horned man, meaning a, uh, a, a man or a bunch of men wearing antlers or horns and the skins of beasts. And these complaints die out round about the year 1100, and we hear no more of the custom after that. But the Abbot's Bromley Horndogs, although it's not continuously ancient, really strikes a very primeval note by recreating the the support man in prehistory.
0: In the last episode, I talked a little bit about how the May is a kind of mirroring holiday with Halloween. There are these similarities, but also some interesting differences. And so by doing the May, by actually going out and performing this ritual, I came to a deeper understanding of that. I think it's poetically right, given the experience I just had, that we speak of Halloween night, but May morning. Because at Halloween, we're leaning into the dark and cold of winter. And at the May, we're leaning into the light and warmth of summer. And I thought about last night, this whole Last night as I was out gathering the May, I thought about this whole issue. When you're Maying, you realize that something is happening for you in microcosm that is happening at the level of the calendar of that entire year. So here's what I mean. At the May, winter is giving way to summer, dark to light. Well, you experience that in microcosm when you're out of maying, because it's dark out and it actually was quite chilly even here in in Texas where I live now. It was quite chilly and I wasn't really adequately uh, bundled up. I was wishing I had a heavier coat. So you're out there, it's dark, it's chilly, but then while you're Maying, the sun comes up and you're bringing home the May, a branch of May, the flowers and greenery at sunrise. And when the sun comes out, it starts warming up. And it's supposed to be fairly warm today and bright and sunny and beautiful by afternoon. So you kind of experience that, that transition from dark to light in one night into morning, May even to May morning. And that's sort of what's happening at the level of the year as well. So that was something I learned by doing. And some of the things I was talking about in the last episode came home to me in a way they never had before, because I've never actually done this ritual this way until this year. The spookiness of May Eve really did come more vivid for me, because you're out there in the woods, in the country by yourself, and you know there are animals, it's dark, you may not know exactly where you're going. You're looking for flowers, but it's hard to see them. You have to bring a torch or some kind of light so that you can see. A good flashlight is definitely advisable. What you might call the eerie, cheery May came home to me. The eeriness and the cheeriness. Because it's eerie before it's cheery. That is, it's dark and spooky before the sun comes up. So that I feel that I have in my bones now in a way that I didn't before. Another important part of the Maying experience that I learned by doing has to do with sleep deprivation and the mind altering effects of sleep deprivation. As the night wore on, things got weirder and weirder and kind of trippier because I was so sleep deprived and that added to the enchantment of the experience. After my last episode, some folks who listen to it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, not so much on YouTube, but on the audio-only platforms, wrote to me to ask me some questions. So I wanted to answer some of those questions. Oh, by the way, before I get into this, if you're watching on YouTube and you have questions, please, rather than emailing me, just leave the questions in the comments because that'll help my channel out. Okay. Dear Greg Brownerville Dimension, could you discuss Maying traditions in the United States? I came across an NPR article from 2015 about one interesting Maying tradition that was quite popular in the U.S. at one point, And it was the, the May basket tradition. I'll just read some excerpts from this NPR article, and I'll also put the link to it in the show notes. In Dunkirk, New York, the Evening Observer observed on April 30th, 1932, that young people were collecting samples from wallpaper dealers and creating baskets of all sorts and varieties as to shape, size, and color, and will hang them on the doors of their friends at dusk on May Day. What a gallant occasion my mother made of May baskets. Lists were made and rewritten. It became almost as exciting as Christmas. Her family used old milk cartons for containers, and they made popcorn and Boston creams for each basket. People in her community returned May baskets to their owners at Halloween. I thought that was interesting. Showing that dynamic whereby the May and Halloween are mirroring holidays. So you get the May basket at the May, and you return the basket, at Halloween to the person who had given it to you. One listener from Spotify wrote to me and said this. Well, she said that she agreed with me about the eeriness, the spookiness, the kind of eerie, cheery May. She said, I think it is something about the changing of the seasons. And like you say in the podcast, the liminal time in that transition Something about the change in nature, weather, astronomical phenomena, and all the lore that comes with it is very magical, mystical, but it always feels spooky and special. It definitely is a similar feeling to why we love October, but a colorful, pretty spring edition. All of this made me think about how in a lot of mythologies, the god of sex is also the god of death. You think of may as celebrating new life which is associated with sexuality but halloween is celebrating death there's that linkage in these holidays this affinity and we see that in mythologies when the deity of the graveyard is also the deity of sexuality Another thing I noticed that was interesting to me, there are various arrangements of the May carols and I listened to a bunch of them because I was getting ready to play a May carol. I wanted to sing a May carol on May morning, which I did do. So I was studying these May carols even more than I had in the past. And I noticed that there were a variety of arrangements, as I said, and several of them were very minor, using a lot of minor chords, which dial in that eeriness that we're talking about. I thought that was an interesting choice on the part of many a musician. And I think it shows that people do feel the eeriness of May Eve and May morning. When you uh, post a link in the show notes to a conversation that happened this May Eve between two Irish folks who were discussing for the Irish American foundation or society or center, center, maybe center for Irish American culture, something like that. I'll post a link to it so you can listen to this discussion because they have a fascinating conversation about May Eve as it's understood and celebrated in Ireland. As I was studying the May carols, I made a composite carol. I found favorite verses from various carols and I put together a May carol and wrote a little bit of uh, a few lyrics myself just to kind of stitch everything together. And I'll put the, the lyrics I came up with in the show notes as well, in case you would like to use that for your own May Day, May even May Day celebrations in the future. There are these interesting ways in which the lore around the May in Ireland seems to be related to, but exactly opposite the lore that you find in Britain. So for example, in Britain, Whitethorn, which is a type of hawthorn, is... Commonly brought back to celebrate the May on May morning, and people would take it into their homes, the Whitethorn. It's considered very bad luck to bring Whitethorn into the home in Ireland on the May. It's also considered bad luck in Ireland to give away dairy at the May. Well, it's it's a part of the Maying tradition in Britain to give dairy to the mayors who come to your door on May morning. In fact, in many carols, there'll be some verse that goes something like this. Wake up, wake up, you pretty fair maid. Wake from your drowsy dream and step into your dairy house and fetch us a cup of cream. They're out wandering in the woods and then they come out of the dark of night, the dark of the woods and come to your door bringing Whitethorn and asking for dairy, which from the Irish perspective would be all the wrong things. You should be very wary of this if this were to happen because you don't want Whitethorn coming to your house and you do not want to be giving away dairy. And I wondered whether there might be some old relationship between this Irish lore and the British lore. This is a stretch. I do not have evidence for this. I do know from reading Hutton and others that there are connections between English folk practices, British and Welsh folk practices around the May and Irish ones often having to do with fire, but the part of England where you would see that is mostly Southwestern England and the May carols that that I'm looking at here are really from the East, like from Bedfordshire, that area. So it's kind of a stretch. I don't know if there's a relationship here, but it's intriguing, so I'm going to mention it. I said in the last episode that, in my mind, the kids on Halloween ally themselves with the ghouls and goblins and ghosts, that is, with death, with the other side, not the living, and that at the May, the kids are identifying themselves with life, with the greenery, with the woods, and suggesting to the people whose homes they come to that maybe those folks are closer to death, that they're getting closer to crossing over to the other side because they're reminding them that they're going to die. But the kids may have a kind of auto-antonymic significance. The the image of the child at your door at the may may have an auto-antonymic implication. What do I mean by auto-antonyms? I've talked about this, I think, in episodes in the past, but an auto-antonym is simply a word or an image that has two meanings that seem opposite. So for example, buckle, you know, if a bridge buckles, it means it's splitting apart. It, it's being uh, cleft. But if you buckle a belt, you're bringing it together. And actually cleave is another auto I just said cleft, past tense of that cleave. Can, you can, if you like in the Bible, cleave to your wife or your spouse after in marriage, but we can also speak of, uh, Cleaving something as in cutting it into. These are auto antonyms. Is the child mayor, the young mayor, not mayor as in leader of a town, but M A Y E R, the person maying the child who's been out of maying, as I was maying last night. The child at your door on May morning, is that child in in their Symbological or folkloric significance, autoantonymic, perhaps because they do seem to ally themselves with the greenery, with life, with the spur- with the summer, with the budding trees, and so forth. but the fact that they ask for cream and bring whitethorn may suggest that they're allied with the fairies. You think about the the ethith, the ethifon out there in the woods, are these children like the ethifon? are they like these fairies? They're wandering in the dark of night, they're coming to your door and they're asking for cream. Well, fairies are known to love cream. In fact, if you'll recall from my episode with Ronald Hutton uh, a few episodes back, I read to him a quote from William Butler Yeats who says that nobody really believes or ever believed in fairies in England the way they believe in fairies in Ireland. And he says, for example, no one ever laid new, new milk on the doorstep for the English fairies. And Hutton objected to this, as do I. I think Yates was wrong. But nevertheless, it's significant in this connection because he mentions that people would leave out new milk for the fairies. Where? The doorstep. Where are these children at the May? They're on your doorstep asking for cream. And maybe they are kind of spooky, telling you about death coming from the woods, coming from the dark of night, from the mystery, that the eerie part of the cheeriness. The eeriness of the cheeriness of May, perhaps it's an intriguing thought I, for me at least, and I hope that it will be for some of y'all as well. Here in the American South, we have a special hawthorn. The hawthorn is very significant because it's the it's a tree of the goddess, and it's closely associated with this holiday, the May. There is a tree in the in the American South called the Mayhaw, and actually, there's a festival coming up. If you're anywhere close to El Dorado, Arkansas, I think it's this coming weekend. May 6th ish, something like that. They're having, just look it up, it's the South Arkansas Mayhaw Festival, celebrating this tree. What's interesting about the Mayhaw, the Mayhaw, it means May Hawthorn. The Mayhaw is different from other Hawthorns in that the haws, the fruits, actually appear at the first of May, right around May Day. So this is a very special hawthorn that we love and cherish here in the deep south but the mayhaw is great because the fruits are are larger than some of the other haws and they're they're really tasty and they make a beautiful and delicious jelly mayhaw jelly is highly prized in areas where it's known where the mayhaws grow wild and there's a family kind of a tradition often of going out in boats and dip netting those mayhaws up out of the of the you know, out of the water where they're floating, where they've fallen off the trees. Or what people do is spread a tarp under a mayhaw tree and then thrash the tree and the mayhaws will fall. Another question, this one from somebody who listened to the last episode on Apple Podcast. Greg, could you provide links to poems that express the spirit of the may? Yes, I will provide links to three poems that I think will be... Interesting in a lot of everything we've discussed. Robert Herrick's great poem about this tradition, this holiday, it's called Corinna's Going and Maying. Also, that opening section of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, April is the Cruelest Month, kind of gets at this, the, the darkness of the May. I know it's about April, but April gives way to May. And then there's a poem called Injust by E. e. Cummings. Now, this is an American poet, E. E. Cummings. And so for him, this time of year is spring. But in the British understanding, traditional folk understanding, this is the opening of summer. Nevertheless, this poem is a wonderful thing to contemplate alongside this episode and my last episode, because Cummings does a great job of getting at that mysterious affinity between life and death that we feel this time of year. Thank y'all so much for being with me for this episode and for the last episode. I hope that I've helped you understand and celebrate this largely forgotten but beautiful holiday called the May.